Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn more about what we do, you can head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on virtual production and media. And our second hour, that's when we spend a little bit more time on a specific subject. And today we'll be talking about second hours on Mondays. And we want to hear what you would like to see from us and hear from us in 2023. Well, we've got a lot of questions packed up. So, Bill, let's get this party started. Absolutely, Liberty. Uh, welcome. And let's say Mike Edwards has our first one this morning. And he says, morning, guys. What's the signal flow when rack mounting a Mac Mini in order to get both screen outputs into a Blackmagic Video Hub as well as external monitors? What equipment is necessary? Go ahead, Jason. Well, Mike, you would take both of your outputs and you would convert them into SDI and then you would go SDI from the Mac Mini into the Video Hub, and then you would go out from the Video Hub into uh, both of your monitors. And the beauty of a Video Hub is that it will do the routing for you if you set up static uh, relays. And Alex? Yeah, and the, um, the either the AJA T-Tap, the TAP, T-Tap, is that right? T-Tap, um, or the Blackmagic HDMI to SDI is enough. You want to have something really simple that doesn't add any conversion unless you need it. Next question. Paul Wallace in uh, Cedar Creek, Texas says, computer glasses question, how do you determine which setting to use? Uh, for example, 1, 1 1.5, 2.0, and so forth. And what filter, for example, blue light and tint should he use? I start with Guy. Yeah, the first model that I got was just the plain Jane ones. I know that they make, Gunner makes a prescription model as well. I believe Chris, um, Chris Fritchie uh, got the models that are custom to his uh, eyes. I tried ordering the 2X. Uh, they started to concave, so straight lines were no longer straight. So you got to be really careful and consult a, an optoma, optoma, uh, optometrist. Optometrist, yeah. Yeah. optometrist. Yeah, one of those guys that uh, know what you need for strength. It'd be just like going to the drugstore and getting reading glasses. But if you go too strong, it's going to give you a headache. And Courtney? It depends on your eyesight or your two individual eyes. I'll tell you what I have done is uh, my eyes are, are set at different levels, 20, 30. One focuses 20 feet, the other focuses at 30 feet. And I left them that way when I had my interocular lenses replaced for cataract surgery. Um, so now I just use drugstore magnifiers because the difference between my two eyes for computers gives me a much deeper range to work with. The problem is if they correct your vision 100% uh, and then you put on equal magnifiers that are the same magnification in both lens, it limits the depth of field that you have. You have to be a specific distance from that computer screen for it to be sharp. But if you have monovision, in other words, a different focal length for each eye, uh, you have a much uh, broader range because your brain will shift between the left eye and the right eye as you get closer uh, seamlessly. So, you know, if you're working on your laptop, you may be a different distance from your screen as if you're working at a desktop. So it gives you a much bigger range if you can split the distance between the two. I'd love to see them make uh, magnifying glasses that are slightly different in magnification for each eye, and that gives you a little difference in range uh, in depth of field. And Bill, what do you have to add? I have the same experience Courtney did. When I got uh, eventually needed eye surgery to do that, I got monovision. I set one eye up for 
uh, the computer distance, and I told them to make it somewhere about three feet. And then I asked them for one that was distance vision because I wanted to be able to drive without worrying about my glasses. They did that. And over the course of the next week or two, I had been wearing monovision contacts for a while, but it really is a very useful thing. And yes, uh, I, like Courtney, have to use the over-the-counter cheaters, as we call them sometimes, to do really close-up work or if I'm reading uh, but other than that, I found this to be a really useful thing. So if you get to the point in your life where you have to get some surgery done, don't be afraid of it. It really is a huge boost to life, makes things easier by far. Next question. Paul Buchan in uh, Columbus, Ohio says, I recently uploaded a 4K video to YouTube using the Premiere preset. It was 20 minutes long, but it took over eight hours to process after upload. I was surprised that the preset didn't offer more of an advantage. Am I missing something? Guy? Yeah, I'm curious as to what kind of computer and uh, if you're on a Mac or PC or if it's strong enough. If I look at the, uh, the settings uh, for the YouTube 2160p 4K Ultra HD export setting, uh, one of the things that I always do first off the gate, if it's 20 minutes long, is you'll notice that there's these little um, sliders here on the bottom. You, you can actually trim. And so if it's a 20 minute piece, I'll only encode one minute first to get an idea as to the range and the quality. I will not uh, do the whole thing unless it, it's uh, footage that I already know that it's part of a workflow. But if I'm just doing it out the gate, I wouldn't I wouldn't spend eight hours uh, waiting to see a result. So that's one thing to keep in mind is down at the bottom. I don't know if you guys can see that. Yeah, you guys should be able to see that down at the bottom. There's that trim. The other thing is that it's a VBR uh, one pass. Uh, you want to play with some of these. Uh, two pass would obviously make it uh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> it would take a lot longer. But there is uh, some other settings in here, like constant bit rate, where you can um, you can flip it. And then, like on mine, I have the uh, hardware encoding for the NVIDIA codec. So if you have a graphics card in there, you might want to check to see if it's uh, flipped on. If you've got your hardware encoding, otherwise, it is just relying on the CPU, and uh, you're not taking advantage. So again, I, I don't know what computer you have if you're on a Mac or PC. Maybe you could put that um, in the uh, in the chat. And also, I would look at using compressor if you are on the Mac, because there might be, especially if you have an M1, there might be some silicon advantages. And Mitchell. Guy, is that the media encoder you're showing us on the screen? Is, that is Adobe in, uh, media encoder. Okay. Uh, what happens sometimes is within Premiere, you can set some settings, and then it hands it off to maybe media encoder. And I find that that round trip sometimes slows things down. Sometimes it's better to output in a mezzanine format and then go back into media encoder or compressor and uh, do your encoding for YouTube. Sometimes it's faster by a significant amount. And Bill. Um, I may be reading this wrong, but it looked to me like they had uploaded the video and what was causing the tremendous delay was what YouTube was doing on their end to do their transcoding so that it could be on the site. Uh, eight hours does seem unreasonable. And I would look at what was the frame uh, cadence that you sent to it did you send them some sort of uh not h264 but some kind of odd encoding that had a lot of predictive frames or iframes and maybe on a on that 20 minute video it had to do tons and tons of creation also remember when you're putting it up on a public service like that you're in a queue and it may have been uh there may have been something happening in terms of maintenance on the end up on youtube there also might have been something in terms of uh just a huge flood of people uploading things maybe at the end of a week or something like that that can delay the queues getting started so it this one seems to me that it's not necessarily something happening on your end but something happening on youtube's end 
Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I found that if I'm uploading something to YouTube and I don't want it necessarily available in multiple resolutions, uh, I choose an encoder that is a U YouTube profile. So check in uh, uh, Premiere or whatever you're using to uh, render that final output that you're going to upload to YouTube and set it to a YouTube profile or a compressor if they have a YouTube compatible profile. That way YouTube may not have to recompress it. It will, you know, it'll generate multiple resolutions anyway. But uh, the primary resolution at least won't have to be uh, re-rendered if it's already in a, in a flavor that YouTube can just process without re-encoding. And wrapping it up, Alex? I think nowadays YouTube re-encodes almost all the time. So I think that it's not, it used to be something that we could, you know, especially if you uploaded something that was hinted, that had, a, that, had the, that had the information at the header, it would be almost immediate. Um, but it is, I believe that they now re-encode. I'll, I'll, I'll reach out and find out. But, but I think that they re-encode almost all the time. Um, and a lot of it has to do with demand. So if you hit at a time when there's a lot, as Bill said, if you hit at a time when there's a lot of things happening, there's a certain number of servers and you get pushed, you get pushed off the queue. So, um, so sometimes it's just waiting to be processed. Next question. Andy Kofendorfer in Vieira, Florida says, aside from resolution, are there any functional differences between the ATEM Constellation 4K and HD versions? Same number of super sources. Thanks. Go ahead, Alex. I was looking at it. I don't think that there is. It's the same number of inputs, same number of outputs. It has the same amount of processing. It just seems that it's HD. It's not 4K. I don't think there is a Constellation 4K. I think there's 8K and HD. So I don't think there's anything in between that anymore. Um, so, which I think is a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but I think that they've decided you either are going to go up to the $10,000 version and have 8K and below, or you're going to go for the HD and there's a lot less processing. That's why it's a lot less expensive. But I don't think that there's any functional difference between the two. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington. Any recommendations for a high-capacity portable battery bank with solar, solar charging option? Prefer a model strong enough to run a refrigerator for a day. Go ahead, John. Hit up Keenan in Discord because him and Jack have a have an overlanding community and this is what they do they do batteries and solar and last time we went camping he had a fridge that was powered on this unit for three days or four days or something so they know everything about this subject next question mike edwards in brooklyn new york back again again morning guys does the atem sdi or 2me require a signal to be sent back to the switcher from an ursa in order to shade it jason uh, Mike, I would say that there's no such thing as bi-directional SDI, so all SDI switchers are going to require a connection back in order to um, to do the shading. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're sending the signal. You have a one signal coming from the camera to the to the switcher, and one signal going from the switcher to the camera. Note that you don't have to have. Uh, a cable going to each camera from the switcher. You have one output in, in basically it sends all the information for all the cameras across that output. Um, so you basically can, you can send one out and then run it through a splitter and split it to all the cameras and they can all receive the same uh, feed once they get there. It saves you a lot of cable. <laughs> and Jason? I'll say that differently. You could plug output four um, or output two into camera three, because for black magic, the outputs are completely uniform. Next question. 
Dan Shaw in Columbus, Ohio is up next. He says, sometimes I have the need to record a, cons a consented phone call during an interview. Any hardware solutions for how to do this with an iPhone 14, MixPre, and adapters? I'd rather not use an iOS app that the interviewee needs to download. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, the mixer that I'm using, the Rodecaster Pro 2, has a Bluetooth interface built into it that you can bring an iPhone in over its Bluetooth connection uh, and add it to the mix. It also has built-in recording, so you just hit one button to record the output. It'll record both sides of the interview, including your Bluetooth uh, connection over the iPhone, and it can even generate mix minus going back to the, to the person coming in over the phone. So... That's one solution. The other solution is to check out is uh, JK Audio. Oops, sorry. They're your friend uh, when you have to do phone interfaces. They have a variety of uh, phone interfaces, many of them that have connectivity to Bluetooth. And uh, then you can take that output uh, from the JK Audio interface. It usually comes in over uh, XLR connector or uh, a um, high impedance RCA connector into your mixer or recorder and then record it that way. That's another possible. Go ahead, Mitchell. Good suggestions there, Courtney. Uh, another option would be to go over to Angry Audio and uh, check out their uh, Bluetooth device that uh, will pair up with your iPhone and uh, allow that audio now to be uh, output in an XLR fashion, uh, the normal way that you do that. And if you want to kick your game up a little bit further, they have another application in there. I think it's called Call It. And what that basically is, is uh, if you're using an iPhone um, on a network, uh, there's a thing called high-def audio, and you can increase the quality of the uh, uh, the iPhone call substantially, particularly if the uh, the end user or, or the uh, the origination of the call has a decent mic plugged into their iPhone, and that will come through just like uh, uh, FM radio. It'll sound great. So two solutions, one place, go to Angry Audio. And John? You can also use an Avio uh, Bluetooth Dante adapter. Uh, and we take the audio and route it any way you want, mix it to anything you want, um, and then you can use that in the future for anything else that you would need that would require higher quality audio than just a phone call. Next question. John Bernat in Warsaw, Poland. I hope I'm getting that right. How do you give control of a presentation to a distant place? Perfectly on the local network. For example, the person is on stage to have control over the presentation that is in the broadcast truck. Jason? Uh, as long as I've been doing this, there's been exactly one solution. Uh, check out PickleRemote.com. It's every conceivable way of doing this. I, I've got one packed away in a Pelican, but Alex probably has his right there. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we've done this in the past. Now, a lot of times, people will want to bring that computer that's going to do the slides into the into the room because they just they don't they're a little superstitious about this but uh, the way we've done it when you're talking about a truck because you're not talking about online so this is not i'm not talking about an internet solution for this but at a venue uh, what we've done is used the the, the dcn perfect queue and then we've converted the usb connection over um, a lan so the, the and then that gets then reconverted back so it's either fiber directly to something so it's uh, usb to fiber uh, and we're using the ihse um, converters for that but you can the Geffen makes some as well. Um, and uh, so we that that's kind of the IHSE um, extenders with the DSAN Perfect Q is the industrial grade version of what you're trying to do. <laughs> so uh, if you're talking about broadcast trucks, I'm assuming that that might be what you're hinting towards. Next question. 
Tony Mobley here on the panel from Noonan, Georgia says, panelists, I'm using the Shoot Pro app this morning instead of my normal Filmic Pro. How do I look? I think great. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Tony, you look marvelous. Um, it looked fine. I don't think that uh, there seems to be any major difference from what you normally send through. So I think uh, I think you have a consistency there, whether you're using Filmic or uh, Shoot. Go ahead, Tony. So this was uh, bring, being brave this morning uh, using uh, Shoot because uh, I I just it's for me it's very different. And the color and, and everything is very different. And I don't know whether that's good or bad. And that's why I asked the question. So when you uh, say thanks. different, just just the color, is that what you're saying? That you just think the color is different or what in your setup? Was there anything different that you had to to do? I think with Filmic and my lighting, I think that there was a tendency for me to be a little blown out. I don't think that I'm as blown out today as I normally am. Okay. And interestingly enough, I'm on Filmic today on an iPhone and I called you, Tony, to say, like, how do I set this up? So this is actually a good uh, a good uh, comparison with that you're using Shoot and I'm on Filmic today. Um, go ahead, John. The only thing I would say is I think you're a little purple, at least from what I'm looking at in my monitor. But other than that, you look great. Definitely not overexposed. Even the white in the back wall is not blown out, which is, which is great. Go ahead, Bill. The one thing that I am noticing today, Tony, and I'm not sure it's because you have your camera at a different height, but I'm getting more reflection off of lights in your glasses than I've been used to when I see your picture on my screen. So that could be a factor of the the camera height in front of you picking up your picture it also could be that your temples are just riding a little bit low or need to be higher over your ears to just angle that down a little bit but i'm seeing uh reflections off those lights more than i had normally but your picture looks great i think you look fine and mitchell tony i don't want to turn it into a ruthless review i think it looks fine um Maybe your background is a little brighter than you want it to be. Maybe you need to pop a little bit off that background. So I don't know if that's something you can uh, monkey with in uh, uh, shoot, but um, I think overall it looks great. And the thing that Bill mentioned, you're right. It's, it's got a little bit of uh, light, and I get that if I go back like that. Yeah, well, considering that his background is the same as before, um, just the overall picture quality looks good, Tony. And then uh, JJ McKenna in the comments says, perfectly framed. I hope I said that correctly, JJ. And Mickey says, you need to add some green to your tint. So that will probably help some of that, um, the color aspect there. All right, next question. Moving on, it's Douglas Carmichael up next. Does anyone use paper space, and he's got a link there, as a cloud production platform? Oh, let's take a look at paper space there. Doesn't look like anyone has used it yet, but that's something that we can look into and explore and then possibly come back to give you some more insights, especially since we have so many people working in the cloud. So we'll come back to that for you, Douglas. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, VR Florida. For your information, very happy with the new Yamaha AGO3 Mark II for Zoom. Onboard DSP EQ is customizable with zero delay, and the Mix Minus drives my JL JBL monitors nicely. Small desk footprint, and he notes, finally, not bad for $180 US. Go ahead, Alex. 
Sorry, I hit the wrong button. Uh, yes, um, I, I think I'd, I'd love to hear what, know what the noise floor is on it, um, if, if you're able to measure that, just because compared to other things, because it's the Yamahas, the small Yamahas, that's what we've had trouble with in the past, are their preamps. Um, and if they've corrected that, it could be a great value. Next question. Tony Mobley, noon in Georgia, right back. Yesterday, my audio hijack disappeared from my Mac Mini during uh, House of Worship services. I did SOS during office hours. JJ and Joshua saved the day. Thank you. How do I take over the computer House of Worship participants like JJ did? Oh, Tony, you want to give us some background on, on what happened yesterday? Go ahead, Tony. I think you're on mute. So I was doing my I was doing my normal setup as I do for our services. Normally we we come in an hour ahead of time and make sure that everything is working properly. And Audio Hijack was not on my Mac Mini. And it was um the of version three was there. And since I did the Mac update. <laughs> Version three does not work. And mm -hmm. so I had no sound, no audio at all. And so I did a SOS in the Mukana chat to office hours and JJ and, and Josh Kaufman came in immediately and JJ took over the computer and reinstalled a version four. And it was, it was great. And, it, you know, and it happened almost instantaneously. Um, and I just at that point, I realized that it was important for me to figure out how I would be able to take control of the participants in the House of Worship's computers, because there are a lot of different things that happen during the course of uh, the weekly services that um, I would benefit from being able to to log into their computers and help them. And so I wanted to find out if there was a suggestion on, I know I have to get permission from them once the, whatever software is in place, but if the panel has some suggestions as to what I should use, most okay. of them are using Windows machines. Okay, go ahead, Alex. I believe that you can actually share that through Zoom. I think that you can ask you can you can ask for a control of someone uh, computer just through Zoom. So if you're in the Zoom session, you can request that control and take over from there. Go ahead, John. One thing that will be limited in Zoom is you want to have access to any system level things. You would need something deeper like a team viewer or another screen sharing utility that would allow you to access that. Zoom has some restrictions, which most likely you won't have to get into, but it is a, something to note if you notice that all of a sudden the screen goes black, you're going too far that then the Zoom kernel will allow. And it looks like, so Richard Lavery says, um, any desk and Parsec would be helpful, like you can use that. And then, yeah, JJ says that they just use Zoom remote support. And it's a good, um, thank you for that question, Tony, because it is knowing that you are probably working with some folks that will, are not necessarily tech savvy. And if you are on a time crunch, being able to just to go in and, and navigate your way through um, is, is very helpful. Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. says, I need a transcript translated to Latin American Spanish. The document has already been transcripted in English by a human. What's your recommendation for a Spanish translation? Go ahead, Alex. 
we've mostly for Spanish specifically, mostly use production transcripts. They, they do transcripts, but they also have Spanish uh, translators that will um, make that conversion for us. Um, and that's been the one we've used for Spanish specifically. There's a lot of them uh, that are available in DC specifically. Translators are pretty popular because there's a lot of people there. So there's um, quite a few um, on, uh, on M Street. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you could, uh, for cheap and easy, you could try just running it through uh, Google Translate. Uh, you know, they have uh, translate.google.com. You can upload a, a document there in uh, Word format, uh, DocX format, and it will translate it, and you can choose your language. Spanish, under Spanish, it only has one selection, so I'm not sure whether it's going to give you the, uh, the correct, uh, you know, colloquialisms for the Spanish that you need uh, for, you know, uh, European Spanish as opposed to the Mexican style or the South American style. So uh, I would run it through that and have someone who is a, a local speaker of the dialect that you need read it and see if they think it's accurate. Yeah, that's I was going to add on to that um, there, Courtney, just being mindful of that. And especially if depending on who the client is that you're working with, because then it, you just want to make sure that you do have those idio, idioms spoken correctly um, in that other language. Mitchell? Uh, what Courtney's referring to, uh, generally the, uh, uh, the particular dialect is Castilian Spanish, is the accepted standard. Next question. Morgan Price in uh, Victoria, British Columbia says, what's your simple approach to bringing in one remote Zoom attendee into your local ATEM to do a live supersource back into a Zoom meeting so people can see and hear the speaker and can hear the group? I, and assume I have a spare M1 Mac available. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I guess the question is, is are you taking them from one meeting and putting them into another, or are you taking them from the same meeting and then putting them back in? Um, I would generally avoid trying to take them from the same meeting and putting them back in. I'd want to bring them in from a breakout room if it was left to, to me uh, to make that happen. Um, the simplest way to do it that we've done it is, is that we would use a Mac mini with, you know, some kind of, uh, you can just use HDMI and convert it to SDI or, or HDMI straight into the ATEM. Um, we now use Zoom ISO for those things because it allows us to have a clean interface. I don't, I don't want to see any of the errata that might occur with the vanilla version anymore. So, um, so we use Zoom ISO for that. Um, and then, uh, and then that's going to give us a nice clean output that we have a lot of control over the audio and the video and everything else. And so, uh, that's how, that's how we tend to, uh, approach it to get it into an ATEM specifically. Next question. Next question, Paul Wallace, Cedar Creek, Texas says, is there an app that uses Apple's AirTags to reconstruct the travel history of your devices? And he wonders, is there a history file? Go ahead, Jason. Without getting into the, the idiosyncrasies of it, I, I would say no. Um, in lost mode, you've got a little bit more history that will get surfaced. But no, if this app were to exist, I think uh, Apple would be in big trouble. Alex? Yeah, specifically from a security perspective, Apple doesn't want to give you that information, so they're not—they're not—it's—they're not, they're not, not going to uh, provide that. There are plenty of other ones that will do that, and your phone, oftentimes, if, if you know, Google will tell you where you've been for the last ten years, uh, if you want to, if you leave it on. So um, there are other tracking devices that will give you those—that um, information. But the—but the specific Apple's trying to make sure that you know where it is and you can find things, but they don't want to open a can of worms of looking at your total behavior and patterns. And Bill. 
all of that um the workout apps tend to be the place that you can find where you've been because a walking app will often give you the path you've traveled so if you're just looking for where you've been i suppose you could set up a workout and leave that running but i don't think there's anything in the actual air tag system that does that next question uh douglas carmichael many smart home kitchen appliance makers like ge and mealy have web enabled apis aside from cool tech demos what use cases could you see for connecting appliances within or outside the home go ahead mitchell douglas welcome to the world of the internet of things appliances uh other devices i have a air cleaner in my bedroom that is very verbose and sometimes a little too chummy uh, making suggestions like I should get more uh, time outside, open the windows, close the windows, hang out with me, you're in good hands, things like that. So uh, be prepared for them to get very personal. Courtney? It's very, uh, very useful for HVAC stuff. So any heating and air conditioning that is uh, has a web interface, you can control the temperature, you can uh, pre-cool your room down. If you're out, uh, turn on the air conditioner an hour before you get home and uh, set the temperature lower or, or set the temperature higher when you leave the leave for the office and so on. You can control it over your phone uh, remotely. Uh, or you can you know, turn on a heater downstairs while you're upstairs so that it'll be warm by the time you get downstairs. So it's very handy for heating and air conditioning, I find. Refrigerator, eh, not so much. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, you say that, Courtney, but I've got a refrigerator now that if accidentally the door does not fully close in a certain amount of time, the alarm goes off on it to let me know my food is spoiling. It'd be super simple for the new manufacturers to attach that to an alert from my phone. And as you're a block away driving away to work, it says, hey, idiot, you left your refrigerator open and all your food's going to go bad. And that would be a really useful device for that Internet of Things kind of uh, construct. And Nigel? I would say today almost none is the answer to that question. I mean, there are there are a couple of things that I think you would talk about. You could talk about, as Courtney has done, that um, there may be a way if you had a smart enough system, it could regulate the various different devices from air handling to heating to cooling to fans to really keep your house at, at the right temperature without spending too much money. But the reality is most of that stuff doesn't work together again. I would tell you the most important one is if you have devices that are water-based and you are subject to flooding, being able to know when you're away from your home that the leak has started could be a, a great feature. And Mitchell? I thought I'd give you a, a tip here. The one I use the most of the IoT devices uh, is my Nest thermostat. It's very well made. It looks like something that Apple would make. And it also uh, loves to talk to, to uh, Google. I won't tell, I, I just almost gave a command. But um, I find I get a lot of good use out of that because you can adjust it online. You can do it by talking to it. You can go over and just twist the dial and uh, do things with it. And it remembers. It has a memory in it, and it sort of replicates that, uh, that sequence of events. So, for example, when I'm here on office hours, it tends to boost the AC up a little bit so that my room is a little cooler because I have all these lights. And just pulling in some comments here, Chad Lafarge says, connecting all the otherwise unused clocks, notifying of temp conditions remotely. And JJ McKenna says, advertising in the home. Hopefully we don't get there too soon. Next question. Next question, please. No. Kenny Hampton, Greenville, Illinois, noticing a bit of audio video sync issues with Liberty today. Is that a symptom of Filmic Pro? And if so, how do you correct it? I highly do believe that is a symptom of Filmic Pro. Go ahead, Alex. 
Yeah, so Filmic Pro is going to take a little time to get there. Um, you're doing it over. Are you doing it over Wi-Fi? Or are you doing it with a wired I'm connection? I'm not. Yeah, I'm on. A, I'm on a wired connection going directly um, into the into the ATEM. So, um, right. So you've got two different places there that you could get some delay. So some from Filmic Pro, some from the ATEM itself. Um, so when you se anytime you separate audio, you're going to end up with uh, the potential for that to happen. And so somewhere in the audio chain, you need to put a um, a delay unit. <laughs> so and the audio, but so because the problem is the audio is you're on USB there, right? So that's USB yes. into the yes. So the the issue there is that the USB is um, very fast. <laughs> it's it's going to get there uh, without any delay. And so in software, uh, and that could be um, high. I think audio hijack audio has hijack. it there. Yeah, so I audio audio hijack could um you could add a delay there if you if you um say a couple words liberty I'll Oh yeah, and I I wanted to like talk too so that they could see that how it's working. Yeah, it's pretty it's there's 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 a lot of delay there. So so you probably need to get, you know, turn it up. I probably start at 3 or 400 milliseconds to see if that was enough to to delay that um, you know, what that's what it looks like there to me, but it could be a little less. Um, the best thing to do is try to get close, and then um, we use lots of p words. <laughs> Peter Piper picked a peck picked of a peck pickled, pickled peppers. Pickled pepper. We have a we have actually we had an in, we had a uh, uh, don't use the clap. <laughs> no, the, the clap is worthless. <laughs> we do the clap. So at events we do do the clap. So we we clap on the on the stage. We do that okay. for the rest of the crew because they blame they blame the, the the they blame us for bad bad sync if if we don't do the clap. Clap is worthless. It's not it's it's not accurate more than more than sixty milliseconds plus or minus. And so the p word you can only make your your, your lips do a certain thing with p's. And so people say it. It's far more accurate uh, than any clap. So any time any the clap is kind of a. Uh, legacy thing that people do on stage, but we still do it again. Just, but it's it's all theater. We don't even bother to look at it. Yeah, during um, sound check, that's what came up was that my audio was actually ahead of my video and and needing to pull those together, but only so much time and I audio, didn't have audio hijack on this machine. It's usually easier to fix audio. What's really hard is when video gets, you'll see us freak out. If video gets ahead of audio, something is very wrong and there, it's very hard to fix. So, so you worry a lot about video being in front of audio. Audio in front of video is pretty common and usually there's lots of tools like audio hijack in the software that can do it. Awesome. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, looking at finishing my portable setup and finally come to come on regularly. But I'm trying to find a portable backdrop that doesn't require a ton of space or time to set up. Suggestions are appreciated. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I was scrolling madly through my orders. The one that Alex suggested with the magnetic link on a C-stand has been absolutely perfect. So hopefully Alex can, can pick up the slack on that one. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it used to be a last a last delight, um, and, and it's now Manfrotto. So Manfrotto bought last delight along with everything else, or or I guess the the whoever owns Manfrotto, um, and uh, the Vitek Group, I think. And so um, it is now a Manfrotto screen. This is a six by seven. Found that the five by six is easier to manage, but it's just a little too small. <laughs> so, so, um, so this is the six by seven Manfrotto uh, Lycra screen. It's black on one side and gray on the other. I like the black on one side, gray on the other, as opposed to the white on one side, because the white, you know, it feels like it, you can see through it a little bit easier. So, um, and it has a, there's this little Y that you can put onto a light, light stand, um, just anything with a, with a baby pin. And, and basically it will, uh, it has two magnets in it and you can just snap this to it. So you just pop it open, snap it. When you want to put it away, you fold it like a burrito, as we all learned from Bill. <laughs> 
<laughs> we, so, or not a burrito, a taco. Taco, taco. taco. So we call it the taco. Like, I need the taco. And, and so we just, at, at the office, it's just called the taco. Next question. Next question comes to us from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Backend says sync issues with me using shoot. Do I need preset audio for both filmic and a different one, perhaps for shoot? Go ahead, John. Yeah, the processing is going to be different between both apps and the latency will change. Uh, so you definitely want to have a, a latency profile for each different video application that you're using. And if eventually you move into a, uh, a different type of camera altogether, a, another another setting for you to, to deal with. And Tony? Yeah, I know that uh, with Filmic Pro is negative 170 milliseconds and it works great because Mickey tweaked it. And so uh, um, I hadn't even thought about it in terms of shoot. So that is something that I have to address. You were just so excited to use the, the to use shoot. So we understand. <laughs> Next question. John Borntrager says, today I learned about the Lumitone and Harpage instruments. That's H-A-R-P-E-J-J-I instruments. What other instruments has anyone come across that are cool or unique? Go ahead, Mitchell. A didgeridoo from uh, Australia. Very cool instrument. What does it do? Uh, it's a thing you hear it goes. Okay. That uh, Australian sound. I know I did a horrible job of it. That's <laughs> Courtney. Close I could get. Well, if you want to see some real imaginative instruments, uh, go find a uh, a copy of the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T, which was uh, they have <laughs> this basement scene with all these wacky instruments, all invented by Theodore Geisel, who you may know as Doctor Seuss. It was the only live action movie he ever wrote or directed, uh, and uh, it is full of really crazy instruments and sounds. Go ahead, Alex. I mostly stick with with uh, instruments that are over a thousand years old. I don't want to be in any, any kind of fad, you know. Like I, I want to know that they lasted the test of time. Uh, so didgeridoo, a didgeridoo is is definitely one of them. I own I own a dig, a dig that I have in my that I have just can't quite get to it here. It's very pretty. I've had it for a long time. And um, and then I also like imbiras, uh, which are one of the many thumb pianos. Uh, the imbira is specifically from Zimbabwe, which I love to listen to it, and I've got quite a few of them. Uh, my daughter actually plays it better than I do. Um, and then I, I, I did start learning the bagpipes, although uh, at the time I was in an apartment building and my, uh, my neighbors asked me to stop. <laughs> so, 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 we're too impressed until, with until that. Until you're good. It, it's an acquired taste when you're really good at bagpipes, and when you're bad at it, nobody likes it. <laughs> Jason? Years ago, I bought um, I bought an artificial djembe, meaning a djembe with with a, with a drum head that does not change all the time. And for those who have ever had to to restring a djembe, it is absolutely terrible. Um, as far as an interesting instrument, um, the waterphone. If you look this up on YouTube, this is the horror instrument, and it makes the spookiest, like most bizarre sound you'll ever hear. But the moment you see it played, you'll know exactly. Um, you'll, you'll know exactly that you've heard it a lot. And Mitchell, I know I'm going to uh, do a horrible job of pronouncing it. It's called a guiche. Is that it? The thing goes. <laughs> it's a. It's a percussion instrument guiche okay we've got a, a, some new instruments for um for our band to try out <laughs> when they get together next question 
Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. How do you find the right delay time to line up video and audio without a dedicated hardware device like the Hitomi Matchbox? Testing? Apart from testing, what is... Let's hear from the expert, Courtney. Well, you can use a clap or a time code slate and you record something with your audio and video. And this is where the clap can be used. Judging it by eye, uh, real time is difficult. As Alex has stated, it's easier to, to sync up the P's, uh, which our brains are used to seeing uh, in a mouth. But with a, uh, a pair of sticks, a clap uh, that makes a noise, you can save that out, bring it into your uh, editorial workstation line it up and look for the peak of the sound on the waveform and where the sticks close or the hands come together. And you can judge, it will tell you exactly how many milliseconds uh, that is out of sync and whether it's ahead or behind. And then you can punch that into your delay, either on video or audio, to bring them back into sync uh, on your live uh, capture devices. And Alex? Yeah, and one of the things about it is the sticks work way better. The hands are just, they're too soft. They move around too much and people don't do them. If, if you do it, you have to do it like this. So your hands are perfectly straight up and you go like this and you pull them away as fast as you can. So there's only a moment where they're together. Um, so if you're going to use hands, you can, but we use sticks and sticks are, you know, buy them on Amazon for $13. It doesn't matter what, which ones that, are, that, that you have. You just, it's a nice, very precise thing to close. The other thing is, is to test your entire system, including your encoder. What you want to do is collect the HLS segments on the, if you're doing a stream on the other side. So you collect them on the, on the receiving side, um, which a, you know, different a variety of different apps can do. And um, you just need one segment <laughs> that has that has that that uh, that piece there, and that can help you, um, you know, figure figure those things out. Get it close by eye, and then that's how you get it precise. Next question. Next one comes from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Got an Elgato key light yesterday. Came in this morning, and my Mac is not seeing it now. Any suggestions for troubleshooting? Nigel. Yeah, I always find I start with the uh, iOS app on my phone and make it work on that first. And then that will allow you to upgrade the uh, firmware if that needs an upgrading. Uh, and then I do it on the Mac. And then you can go all the way and get it all the way into Companion. The thing you have to watch out though, is if you know it's DHCPing the address, it will change the address quite often for, for Companion. But I will start with the iOS app and work it from there. Go ahead, Jason. Another big gotcha on the Elgato Keylight is that it does not play nice at all with 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. So constrain your Wi-Fi. Just turn off 5 gigahertz, pair it, you know, do your firmware upgrade. And then once you've nailed down the, um, the IP address, you've got a much better shot at, um, at a predictable, you know, Mac-based uh, approach. Go ahead, John. If it's not working in iOS or the Mac, you may have an issue with multicast DNS. You want to make sure that that is enabled within your router. Uh, that's the protocol is going to use to discover the devices automatically and allow you to manage them. So just keep an eye out for that if you're having issues on both. And Courtney. Yeah, Jason and John covered what I was going to say. Yeah, because most devices, most uh, Internet of Things devices that have Wi-Fi connection are using 2.4 gigahertz only. They don't receive 5 gigahertz. So make sure either multicast is turned on or you turn off your 5 gigahertz. That way it'll force everything to 2.4 and you should be able to see it then. And Jason. Oh, yeah. I've got one more gotcha that I've seen before in the field. If you're using an Eero and you're using Draft WPA3, if you turn that on in the beta settings, it's going to mess with everything. Shut it off. Thanks. Next question. 
Uh, next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, and he says, since the Instalink now supports global key binding for presets, would the Stream Deck multi-action keys allow you to move the preset, then switch scenes in a software switcher, or would the movement delay be the issue? Go ahead, Alex. I, I, it must be brand new that, that this is uh, available, so I don't know the exact answer, but it, I'm very excited to see that the link is starting to get some more um, control that is not just through the software. So hopefully that'll we'll have to take a look at it and play with it, but uh, that, that looks like a great option. I'm not sure if that would work, what you're asking would work specifically because we haven't tested it yet, but um, I think that we're going to see API and lots of other extendabilities uh, coming to the InstaLink, uh, Insta360 link um, over the time because it just it, they have that for every other camera that they make. So it seems like this one is just um, on its way through the, through the system. Next question. Paul Valos, uh, Cedar Creek, Texas again. Blue checks are maybe coming out on Twitter today. What are the pros and cons of promoting your brand? Nigel? So I got an offer yesterday for $5 rather than 8 I could sign up to be a blue check. So I thought, well, I'll try that for a month or two and see how that goes. So I signed up. I have to tell you I don't have my blue check yet, which is very disturbing. So I'm hopefully it'll be here by the end of the day. Um, what was actually interesting to me is there's the ability now to upload video and edit stuff. And there seem to be a lot more services. And, and my guess is that in time, you'll pay that uh, 5 or $8 if you want to content moderate, if you want to manage, if you want to monetize yourself. And if you don't, you will just be with the unwashed masses. Alex? I think in the short term, a lot of people are going to pay. They're either going to leave or they're going to pay $8 a month. Um, it is a kind of a, a, a an obvious thing you have to do. Uh, Musk over the weekend basically said that uh, you'll scroll for a long time before you see anybody on in the feed that isn't um, a uh, blue check. Now, what um, the, what's confusing right now is there there was a service called Twitter Blue, which is four ninety nine. There is a service called Twitter Blue that's coming with the check mark that is uh, seven ninety nine or eight eight dollars. The new service with the check mark doesn't come out until after the election, um, so that's going to be um, potentially as early as Wednesday um, that that's going to come out. And um, but I think that the um, uh, I think that most people are in the short term are going to just go ahead and pay it because no one will hear you anymore if you don't. Like you're, if you're a, if you go to Twitter to listen and watch things and look at lists and all those other things, then then you won't pay it because you're a you're a recipient of things. If you want someone to actually hear you um, saying something, uh, which is part of part of the Twitter experience, uh, you will pay for the the check mark because otherwise no one will hear you. Um, it's very similar to what Facebook basically does, which is that no one really hears you until you start paying them for advertising. So, um, so the uh, so I think that that's what's coming, and I think that what it does is it means that Twitter probably won't fold overnight. But there's a lot there; it creates a high potential um, for people. You know, it's a lot of there's a lot of stray electrons, you know, there right now, which is that they'll want to find another home um, pretty quick if if something else looks starts to look viable. Mitchell. For $44 billion, you can put anything you want on your Twitter account. <laughs> and as Alex said, social media has become now, it's a pay to play, if you just like sum it up in that regard. So that if yes, if you need to get your content out and your information out to the audience that yeah, that blue check uh, may be a, a good investment. Otherwise, yes. People will be finding other ways to, to navigate around that. And there might be some innovation that comes from that as well. Nigel? 
So I think if I understood what Alex just said, I actually didn't sign up for what I thought I was signing up. I signed up for Twitter Blue, which is a bunch of services that aren't that don't go all the way as far as the checkmark. And I guess I missed that that connection. So that that's a learning that this. I don't know whether they're both going to survive or they're going to merge or what. The check is is the ver is the verification. No, well, it is it is the services. So you're saying, Nigel, that you you what you signed up was for the services. And I signed up for Twitter Blue, which gets me the services, which I thought were coming with verification, but they're obviously two different things, and I missed that. Alex, it, it's very unclear. I, I the only reason I know is because I almost did it. I, I was like, "Well, what's the four ninety nine version?" <laughs> and I, you know, and I was trying to figure out what that was. So, so it is, uh, it is, it's a confusing setup right now. So, yeah, there, there's nothing. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not. I. It took me half an hour to figure it out over the weekend because I was like, I, people saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm signing up and it's not very expensive," and I was like, "There's something wrong there," and uh, and they're, yeah, they're, and they, and they decided. I think astutely not to do it before the election. So they're right. just going to wait until after the election to, to make the change. But yeah, you signed up for a lot of extra services, which already existed. That that was that that Twitter blue was already there. Um, you're now waiting for the the, the yeah. next version of it, which I will probably be an upgrade or next month you'll get it, or you can probably just move up to that or whatever. And the check mark does come with that, Nigel. I'll post a link to this CNN article there. Bill? I've been able to mostly ignore Twitter for most of my life, and I'm I'm very glad of it this week because one of the things I read this morning that passed was that uh, Mr. Musk had dumped about 50% of his uh, roster of people who were working on the site. And this morning, there was a past link about the fact that he's trying to hire back a lot of them because he realized he cut so deep that they're having trouble getting things done. I think this is going to take a good little bit of time to uh, shake out. This feels a little bit to me like one of those ready, fire, aim circumstances where they wanted to make quick changes that were large changes. And sometimes that's not the best way to run services. Uh, a little more thoughtful approach sometimes, I think, makes better decisions in the long run, but we'll see what happens. And Jason. And if I'm not mistaken along those lines, Rashad, didn't you mention that 100% of, of the accessibility staff were just gone? Like, Rashid? Absolutely. The whole accessibility department has been purged. So um, we'll see where they go with it. I, I heard it as a rumor through another Discord. And then uh, Brianna Wu was on Twitter yesterday, and uh, she stated the same facts. So we'll see where it goes. And Alex? And, and Jack Dorsey was right that they grew incredibly fast. I, I guess I didn't, it didn't really sink into me how little Twitter made. <laughs> like, like it was, it's, it's, uh, you know, like until I was thinking in there, there, so in fairness, uh, there, I, I think that they're going to cut back and then they're going to add things back in as needed there, you know, and this is just a, the time you do something is oftentimes they probably went a little too deep, but they, um, they need to do some surgery. They were incredibly bloated for the amount of money that they're, they're making $5 billion on 7,000 employees. And that, that doesn't, that's, that, that's not a good ratio. Like so, so it's like so. That's a that's a really bad ratio, um, and it was also a really bad purchase price. Like he should have paid about half of what he what he what he what he uh, actually paid for it. So um, so it was, a, it was a selection of that, and I think that we also we can blame Elon Musk, but remember that the Twitter board held him to it. They wanted this. They wanted to get rid of this hot potato as fast as they could. Um, you know, if if they thought that it that he was if they thought they had a great thing and he was. 
um, going to hurt it, they would have let him go. Because remember, he didn't want to do this. Um, he was forced to do it by the courts and so, uh, or by the Twitter board. So they were desperate to get out of this because they were losing an enormous amount of money and they probably couldn't last much longer. So he's now doing what they couldn't do, which is cut deeply into the whole thing. I think he'll end up rebuilding the system. I think that <laughs> already started. I, I'd love to be the person that got fired on Friday and then asked over the weekend to come back because, man... So expensive. Like I'd, <laughs> right. I'd, I'd be like, yesterday's price is a, not could, today's I price. Pay off, I could pay off my house with that. You know, like like with right. with that mistake. You know, so so let's. They uh, performed your salary boost strategy for you. Thank exactly, you. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. That'd be amazing. I, I would absolutely come back uh, at a price two x. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, I I. I, I think a signing bonus that is about the size of my house mortgage would probably <laughs> would probably suffice. So, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Amazon has their just walk out technology that uses machine learning to enable shoppers to shop without a checkout. If the grocers provided APIs and appliances were equipped, could you see similar tech used for auto replenishment in the home? Alex. If it works as well as Whole Foods, no. You know, because Whole Foods is out of ever since Amazon bought them, they've been out of things constantly. So like the thing you just know you don't know about Whole Foods is whether the thing you're looking for will actually be there because uh, it's only there about about 30 to 50 percent of the time so uh so i i don't think it's working very well for amazon john you see this already with some smart fridges um and shelving uh things are using cameras and weight to determine what you're buying and how well it's actually going down or looking at specifically like scanning in as you're storing things uh, so those things definitely will come around how good they are and how much of a barrier of entry is it that's going to really be I think, relative to how well we advance the tech. Courtney. Well, you know, hotels have been using this for years in the mini fridge. You know, if you just take a candy bar out of it, it knows and charges your account $12. Uh, but uh, I find that Amazon, if you order your food from Amazon on a regular basis, like there's a iced tea that I like that I can't get in the grocery stores anymore because they've all consolidated into one single grocery store. Um and if I order it at a certain frequency, pretty soon Amazon knows that frequency and it'll tell you, ah, looks like you're getting low on iced tea. Would you like me to order some more for you? So it will ask to order more based on the, your frequency of ordering it, uh, regular items at a regular pace. So it learns your purchasing uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, behavior and then offers it up to you when it thinks you're running out. And Bill. No one who's ever had a raised a toddler uh, will will forget that time that you were sitting there in the shopping line and the toddler managed to grab three or four things off of the really <laughs> closed shelf, toss them in the cart. So this idea of letting the near field uh, technology just read your cart and charge you for it, I don't think is uh, ever going to completely replace for all of general grocery shopping. There are circumstances where that I think will work for a certain class of customers, but that checkout process, which allows you the last, uh, oh, do I really need that? I, I really like the look of the ice cream when I was in the aisle, but I think I probably shouldn't. That kind of last minute decision, I think people are going to still want to have agency over. And Nigel. Our local arena, the new arena in, in Austin has this for the some of the concessions, particularly the drinks and some of the food, and you wander through a turnstile, you, you give them your credit card, you take what you want off the shelf, and you walk out. And uh, I think it's using cameras to watch us what we're doing. I have to tell you, there's a lot of uh, phased people who, you know, walk out and don't know if they're going to be charged. But let me tell you, it very successfully charges you. Next question. 
Next question comes to us from Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. He says, testing video pencil with Mimo Live. Using NDI to connect iPad with Mimo Live initially, thought the main camera latency was because of NDI, but created a new document in Mimo Live with the Brio as the main camera and still have the same awful latency. Thoughts? Alex, real quick. Yeah, I think that I think that we'd have to define what awful is. So, so like, you know, try to tell us exactly how many milliseconds that you're talking about. Um, if it's half a second or a second, I mean, because there's a big chunks that are different there. But uh, it shouldn't be with the Brio going directly in. You should see some latency. There's just processing latency, especially if your video is separate than your audio pipeline. But um, but and that would be the other thing is if you're talking to your Brio, is it stay? Does it stay in sync? John. Yeah, typically software switchers, you're going to see a one to two second, a milli, or not millisecond, sorry, a second latency uh, when you're dealing with that. It's same same thing you're going to see as a higher level of latency with the audio when you're trying to monitor uh, from the CPU side of the actual processing that's going on. Those aren't dedicated DSPs, um, and so you're going to see a much higher amount of latency than you would dealing with anything else. Just Just keep that in mind when you're not using hardware, dedicated hardware you're going to sacrifice your latency. Next question. Next question, Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How to set up an ATEM for iMag at a live event? Audio sync, latency, external fees, what feeds, what are the gotchas? Alex? So in general, you do want to use an SDI based uh, with reference. So you need to have one of the switchers that has reference for it. Um, you, you're going to want to genlock your cameras uh, and your switcher together because that means that you're going to get that subframe accuracy um, that's there. And that will make a big difference when it comes to latency. So it really is important that everything is genlocked um, as you go through this because otherwise you will not, um, you know, you, that'll be the biggest problem that you have, um, you know, with this uh, is, is seeing someone and having to, live iMag with someone on stage is probably the least forgiving thing that you can do with video. Um, so you just want to minimize anything, any kind of processing that's going on if you can. And then also just know that some of it will be off. <laughs> like, you know, some of it's just going to be, you know, it's, it's not always going to be, you know, I, I, I've worked on some very large events and I can see it. it you're just trying to get within two frames um, if you can. And that means that you just have to minimize the pipeline that goes through it. Next question. Aaron Huslich of Durham, North Carolina says, would anybody be interested in joining an office hours Mastodon server? Alex. And I talked about this on Twitter this morning. I don't think that Mastodon is going to be the thing. Like, I just don't, I just don't, and I don't have the energy to, to, to like dig into like learning new things in this area if it's not going to be the thing. Like, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Like, I, I did this with G, you know, where with Google, where you built up a big following and then, and then it just disappears. I mean, no one's really, I mean, Mastodon, I mean, I don't think anyone really thinks that Mastodon is really going to build up into a large network. Uh, it's, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's, it's just geeky and weird, <laughs> like you know. And so, and so, the thing is, is that I think that that's going to be the the problem with it. Is it's just too geeky, um, and we're geeky, so some of us might get into it. But when you look at a larger market social uh, impact, I don't think Mastodon's it because you know people have tr enough trouble just getting their server to work. And when it looks like it's an it's an open source social media. Service. Yeah, people are talking about it a lot right now because people are leaving Twitter because of all the kerfluffle and saying uh, Mastodon is a distributed server system a, where there's not one central governing body and they want that for some reason. It's a it's a it's a rebound relationship. <laughs> it's not, you know, like it's not it's not going to really it's not going to turn out. Twitter, you let yourself go. <laughs> and Bill. 
that's that's all I was going to say. I hadn't heard of Mastodon before two days ago, but there are enough articles uh, with people in the tech community who are trying to find an alternative uh, just to get away from all the drama. And Mastodon is the thing that is talked about the most for that. And that's what I understood. It's it's a Twitter-ish, but it's distributed so that there's no person who runs the single central core of it. And I think people are looking for that as some of these social media things become more pricey. They're, you know, it, it's just harder to deal with. And they've gotten so big that they want to get out of the drama and get to something that just works. John, real quick. Yeah, when it comes down to it, like it, it's essentially just a really poorly run Discord. Like when you think about what you're actually getting out of it, you're not getting much out of it. Every different community you join is another login to manage. Like that's already done very well with Discord. I, we don't need that again. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana says, what is your go-to wire cam? I've been using, uh, and he's got a link there, uh, viralcam.com since they're kickstarted, but the battery is going and the backup safety cable is not a great setup. Courtney? Well, I don't have a go-to. Well, the go-to would be, you know, Garrett Brown's uh, Skycam or Wirecam, which uses multiple points and digitally controlled winches to control the tension on the cables. I looked at this device. Uh, it's It uses basically a little motor-driven uh, transport that runs it along a single wire. Uh, the wires, you string the wire between two trees or two, two anchor points. But the problem is in looking at the footage that comes from it, uh, it, there's no way to control sag and bounce because as the unit gets out there and it starts bouncing, it looks like there's a lot of bounce because there's no control over the tension in the line that you're setting because that's static and that can droop uh, or you know sh sway in the wind, et cetera. So, and since it's only anchored by two points, and not the greatest thing. It can give you some unique shots for a very cheap price because it's just a piece of rope and a little motor-driven uh, sled that runs up and down the rope. And Alex? The industry standard now is, is becoming uh, spider cam. So spider cam uh, out of Germany is, is pretty much the highest quality that we've seen so far, but that's not... It's not an affordable solution. Um, so, so that, but there's also uh, ProAim uh, makes a, a fair number of things out of India that that um, oftentimes are good for the price um, that, that that are there. Um, and then there's Dactyl. Dactyl, uh, um, and I, I think it's D A C T Y L E. I believe Dactyl is another one that's been around for a long time, and they they build affordable cable cams. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, we talk about Twitter cutting their accessibility team, but why do you think many hardware and or software vendors in our industry don't think about accessibility? For example, I don't see Ableton Bitwig having any accessibility support at all. Go ahead, Alex. It, 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 it comes down to just how big, you know, a lot of times when you're doing a lot of things when you're building a product, you have a, you have a limited amount of resources and a limited amount of time, and you are making decisions based on market size. You know, like like if I'm going to put this limited amount of time into something, how big is that market? How likely are someone? You know, so with software companies, it's actually a lot easier. So an Apple or a software manufacturer uh, that is doing an OS that they have a lot of scale, and they and that market is something that's important to them. But what what many companies do is go, how many people in production? Are going to they're not looking at what's good or right they're looking at uh how much money we're going to is it going to cost because oftentimes accessibility is very expensive oftentimes it's not it's not an inexpensive thing to do um captions for instance when we add captions to an event 
it is just, it's like it becomes 80% of the, of the work of the event is <laughs> getting the captions to work. And so, so it's just a, it's a huge um, lift and then you, you aren't sure how many people are using it. Um, you know, and so captions have been a big success in that area. Um, but other areas, you know, and, and, you know, squeaky wheels do make a difference. So telling people that you're, that you're looking for it uh, means that you, you, that they notice. Courtney? Yeah, a lot of hardware vendors solve this problem by just creating a uh, web-based software interface uh, for their hardware so that, and then built into that software interface is the accessibility of the operating system that it runs on. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the software interfaces used a fixed resolution uh, interface for a touchscreen because it's scaling, uh, a scalable touchscreen interface is very difficult to deal with as an API because the touch points move every time you scale it. So that's one issue, and that's why uh, you have to choose amount of magnification that you use or resolution that you use to get it to work uh, for your level of accessibility. Um, that's one solution they offer, and a lot of them depend on that software interface to handle those accessibility issues. And Harshid. I think a quick issue here is R&D costs money and where the companies are willing to give in for that cost or where they're not willing to give is the main problem that we're having as a uh, market in the States anyway. Uh, they rely on agencies to pay for it and agencies don't mind spending something upwards of $5,000 a piece of equipment, but that piece of equipment only takes, let's say, a fraction of the cost to make. So we kind of have to reconsider the cost of R&D and what does it really mean to a company. Next question. The next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. We talk about Quitter cutting their accessibility team, but why do you think many hardware and or software vendors in oh. our industry? Oh, oh, yeah, we I'm just did that. My oh. apologies. We are yeah, now oh. at the top, top of the, the hour. That just shows that we need to have more conversations around the accessibility in the, in the tech space. But thank you so much, everyone, for uh, all of you producers for submitting the questions for the first hours. Now we're going to make the transition over to us discussing second hours and specifically for Mondays. Um, it's been a little bit over a year and if not hitting a year since really beginning to program the second hours for Mondays. And that is a collection of we cover topics on leadership, on business, on innovation, like when we've had um, folks talking about NFTs and this, we really want to make sure that much like what we were just talking about with accessibility, that we are really serving our community and talking, bringing on guests and topics that really serve what the second hours can be on Mondays and definitely looking forward to hearing what you as producers would like to, to see and hear. Um, we've had some meetings actually, there are, um, we've got like a council helping with that. There's Guy and Nigel and Sky and just some folks that will bring some of their, their both their creative background, but then also their business and entrepreneurial and leadership background. And we've been really thinking about what are some of the topics that would make sense that would resonate with the community while also this is a great opportunity because there's a survey that we've got and and we'll look at getting that into the newsletter to hear from the community but this time is an open conversation open dialogue um, to hear from you alex yeah i i love i love the 
ones where we're talking about business owners that are talking about how their business runs, you know, like what, what it takes. I think when we looked at the gaming, really understanding, having people on at least once a month, I think that, that are in an industry or from an industry um, that might come on and just talk about what the industry is really like and what are the challenges in those industries. I think that helps us get our head around it because I think a lot of times we're on the outside looking and we're doing the graphics for them or we're doing something. But I think that um, in different industries that we may touch, whether it's an event producer talking about what they deal with or someone in the game industry or someone in the broadcast industry, just having them. And it could be people even... Uh, that that still run a business. It could be people who have retired that don't that don't. In some cases, that's a better situation because they don't they don't have anything to protect anymore. <laughs> so right. They, you know. So so they're they're leaving that industry, or maybe they're leaving that industry and going to another industry. So now they can give they can give us the skinny on what what's actually going on. So so I think that 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 would be uh, interesting. Yeah, and and yeah, just even having like Todd was you know phenomenal. We've had a lot of phenomenal guests on on the second hour, but as you said, like their deep industry knowledge helps us because it was a couple of weeks ago with the conversation around jobs of the future and recognizing like having an understanding of those the gaming industry, NFTs, even um, there's been a lot of talk about AI and uh, getting a better understanding of those industries and what their needs are and then how we can support and because everyone in the OH community is not necessarily tech. We have the education group, we have, you know, marketing um, folks as well. And so many others that probably just don't have a, a categorization yet or a grouping. And that's I kind of see Mondays being a, a little bit of a catch all. And this conversation will help to maybe even bring some more definition to that. Um, Jason? So are we just so I'm clear, are we talking only about the constraint of office hours thematically second hour Mondays or is this is this kind of writ large? Um, it, it's it's more so Mondays, like so as the the community, as the group, we're planning out because uh, some folks it takes it takes a while <laughs> to get them. Like the Sean and Benji took a really long time to just now lock down their schedule. So as we continue to look at the thought leaders in the space that having an idea of who we want to invite on or those topics, then our backend team can really work on, on, you know, courting them and inviting them and all the logistics that it takes for, for producing. So yes, for Mondays, but Mondays, and we're also defining Mondays because that was kind of an, an internal conversation. We've been throwing things at the wall to see what sticks and um, yeah. And just hearing from the community. So, so does that answer? Uh, yeah, it does. Um, along those lines, I think I personally have found the the most value in the things like online gaming that I I knew the least about. Right, like seeing how it connects to to the things that I already know in production has been incredibly valuable because it's you know we end up with these talented people who can very quickly give us a snapshot, and I I personally have found that very valuable. So yes, you know, the stuff that to me is, is, is production adjacent is, is actually more neat. Nice. Courtney. Yeah. I think what Alex said, you know, finding retirees can, can give you a great deal of knowledge, uh, general knowledge about a topic, but with the frequent paradigm shifts that we're running through with technology changing on a daily basis with AI and everything else, uh, I know I get left behind and I have trouble 
keeping up. So it, it would be great to bring in some of the younger people that are still working in the industry. But the problem is scheduling and getting them to come in on a morning between, you know, the because if they're very good, they're working. So uh, it's hard to schedule. And maybe we could do something like a, do a pre pre-interview, do an interview with them and the host, a host can take time out and at their availability, conduct an interview and maybe play that interview back uh, as an informational point in the second hour and then the panel can discuss what was said during the interview if the person is not available to field questions. Of course, that is a that is not near as good as having them live on the show itself, but it might be a way to get some of that expertise uh, into the discussion uh, without having to pull them out of a working job. Agreed. And Jason, was that you coming back with a, or did that just pop up? No, the, um, okay. it came up because I, I wanted to be sure that that after you answered my question that, that, that I had just another quick in. Copy that, copy that. All right, and it looks like... Um, Okay. Harshid? Hey, so uh, what is interesting is what would you guys want to understand about accessibility on, um, you know, on the front of things? Because for me, accessibility is not necessarily um, that I want to bring it up every single time. It just, it becomes part of me because of my vision loss. Um, from my perspective, I look at it as, well, if YouTube is soon going to allow audio description, what is that pipeline? How many channels does it take for somebody to sit in a room that's, you know, covered up and um, soundproofed to read a script? And who's going to write that script? Uh, maybe Sky is going to write that script because he's a great storyteller. Um, for me, I make all of these small connections with all the folks that are here. Um, differently because everybody brings some different uh, things to the table. So what would, you know, myself or Laura or anybody else that is vision impaired or, you know, uh, Zach that could also bring his knowledge to the table, um, how can we bring another set of people to have a conversation? We've already spoke about women should come to the table and I kept on saying that's a good run and we had her come twice. So what other things do we feel as a group that could enable more topics? I've mentioned audio description. Uh, I've mentioned maybe other tools that could help each other. Just, you know, I can't read the teleprompter. What kind of tools do I need? So what, how can we help each other? Yeah. And I just want to, this is um, just a benefit to having you and Laura here. We, because um, I've been away for in production, we, our script writer had to do something for uh, writing for an app that had some accessibility um, components. And I remember in after hours, you commenting of um, for if you're going to lead someone who might be visually visual impaired that to put your arm out and lead and immediately I messaged them and that changed to the script. And it was like, the client was like, yes, like, aha. So, um, yeah, just, just all of, all of that feedback, but what other, maybe Harshid, you can even help to answer that. Like what other areas do you find where there's maybe some neglect in the accessibility space as it relates to production and or events? Well, one thing that Courtney mentioned as interface software are made, we might not have the luxury of changing sliders. So for me, when I look at hardware, I like faders and knobs and, you know, pot, you know, to pot the things to different uh, uh, levels. So for me, I like the physical aspect, but 
there's also that conversation to be had with, let's say, SSL. Hey, uh, what is your software like? Let me test it out for you. Uh, I know uh, a wonderful woman in Atlanta, and her dad uh, used and her dad's parents used to be opera singers at Georgia State. And it's just incredible to learn about audio from him. But he is so incredible that what he does for his daughter to get her accessibility needs for, you know, through high school. And I was able to help him in certain cases. And I think the Melee would be an incredible piece of equipment for her because she also has autism and other things. But besides of that fact, it, she likes smaller devices, right? And that device sounds like a size, size of a nook, maybe. I'm going to go ahead and send that out as a recommendation. So for each other, um, I think asking questions is always welcomed. It, don't feel shy. Um, and then the other thing is maybe I'm asking a question for somebody else. So don't consider that that's my question that I'm asking always, because we are all producers at the end of the day. We have to produce something for someone to have some sort of interest. And speaking of producers, this is a great opportunity for you to add any questions that you have around our Monday second hours and or any suggestions for what you would like to hear and see or even some guests that we can invite into this conversation. And let's head into the questions, Bill. Absolutely. Our first one comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. And he said, could we think of a theme of topics for small creators specifically? I'm a very small creator embedding it into my academic work and feel I learned so much from office hours when we talk about solutions for both big and small work. Yeah, there is a big, even even on YouTube, that in the past few years of this now community of like small creators and and the actual definition, I don't know that I have that, but I look at un people that are like under 10,000, um, whether it be 10,000 followers or whatever their community looks like. But that's a, a great suggestion, Morgan, because that just overall will help whether that be from the business side of things or the the growth aspect of things uh gadgets gear um so including small creators in that in that conversation because we've done some things where it is like freelancers comparing you know on um people who are in corporate or in organizations and then having the freelancers. So that makes sense too. Now just making sure that we address small creators. So thank you for that. Bill? Absolutely. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with that idea. To me, the change in accessibility of equipment and the ability to do uh, video, audio, and, and other types of production work without having to invest in a corporate structure. I mean, when I was starting out, literally, if you couldn't get through the door of the TV station, you couldn't do production and look at look at where we are today you have a smartphone in your pocket you can literally do a turnkey video production with nothing but that all the way through which means that there are tremendous swaths of people out there who are excited about this and they want to understand how to do that and they're going to be navigating just like i did i navigated from uh camcorders up through professional cameras and adding more equipment in the course of the arc of my career individuals are going to do that too and i think individuals are going to now start easier develop skills and eventually then need to have some of the skills of being able to expand their operation and learn more about collaborative work the kinds of things that you used to only be able to learn about in the big shops so i th i think it's a small creators is is the beginning where the people who will be the big time creators all have to begin in this era and courtney 
Yeah, look on YouTube for uh, creators that you really like their presentations of and see if they have posted any uh, behind the scenes or information on how we do what we do. You know, Marcus Brownlee, who produces some incredibly professional stuff, and he has almost an unlimited budget. But there are a lot of uh, do-it-yourselfers out there, you know, one-man band type YouTube creators that have millions of followers and produce uh, videos every single day or every single week that work with just a shoestring budget, a single camera, and they're edit on their laptop and upload every day. Uh, follow them and see occasionally they will post behind the scenes stuff or instructional things on how they create their YouTube channel. So that's a good source to go to uh, for learning about uh, you know how to be a creator for uh, on a budget. Uh, without and a lot of the stuff we present here is, you know, we have Alex's wallet to look at, and a lot of times uh, none of us have Alex's, uh, you know, funds. So uh, you know, we will present a lot of times the high end version of that, and you may not have the uh, the ability to purchase that some of that more expensive equipment. So uh, look around because there are do it yourself channels that uh, show you how to get good results on the cheap. And then I think too, to Morgan's price is us bringing some of those conversations. So you actually just gave me a really good idea, Courtney, with that is looking at some of the topics that they do address the DIY. Marquise Brownlee is definitely not a small creator at all, uh, but he does speak to those that are looking to grow their skills, but looking at some of those, uh, some of the content that they do put out and then bringing that, seeing how we can tweak that and make it work for the office hours community. And the other thing I was thinking, we, I don't recall, and feel Feel free anyone to chime in uh, that we've spoken too much about finances. And I think sometime earlier this year, there might have been just an overall second hour brainstorm where it was the concern was um, the legal parts of things and finances changes or it's different in, in each country. But there could be some potential for us to um, bring some experts in that could maybe speak around the general um, the general area um, from finances, because that's really important for us to be able to get to the Alex Lindsay uh, budgets. Next question. Next question comes to us from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. John says, Monday, second hour idea, a month-long focus on the business side of a specific industry, for example, gaming. Week one would be marketing, week two, HR staffing, week three, an overview of historical changes, week four, future of the industry, stuff like that. Mm, I like that. Alex? Yeah, I think that um, I, I definitely think we should dig into industries related to those things. One thing that we have found didn't work really well earlier on was trying to build themes over time uh, because if people didn't, if they weren't engaged on the first one, they, they, they tended not to come back to the other ones. And so, so right. it, it, you know, so uh, having the same thing, they'll go, oh, that's part of that model that I don't want. So um, that's why we tend to switch it up a little bit. We have themes for the days, um, but we, and we try to think of it. I do think that we want to think about it. It's easier to manage if we start thinking about themes for each, the first week, second week, third week, fourth week, that we talk about different kinds of things and we know what that box is going to be. It might be, you know, and, and I don't know what those boxes are yet for the, for Monday, but I, you know, so, but, but I think that that might be something that makes it easier is we're always going to interview somebody about being a creator on the first week of every month. And we're going to do this. Now, sometimes that becomes hard because then you have to find that. But if you say that, like, I'm only going to, if I'm going to interview creators the first month, the first week of every month in 2023, there's only 12. There's 12 creators that you got to find, you know, and then, and then you go down and you go, okay, now we're going to talk about the business elements on the second Monday of every month. 
now there's only 12 subjects you got to figure out. And so you, you kind of can build some order and then you have kind of wild cards on the five, on the, on the fifth Monday uh, that you have occasionally. Jason. I'm going to throw something out that I, that I mentioned over the weekend um, that is not a fully formed idea by any sense of the matter, but um, it, just about every aspect of production has a cloud component to it. And I feel like it's been covered um, starting from the very bottom of Amazon S3, but has, has not really been um, allowed to bloom into a shared vocabulary for the parts that, that really... Uh, how do I put this? That that should be their entire. Nah, I, I don't fully understand this. Other than I think it would be good to have a second hour where we we establish a vocabulary about the cloud so that it can be referred back to and do, does not need to start from zero. So basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, that that time that hour would be dedicated to just making sure that language, like almost like here's a glossary of terms and here's how we use them and we describe them. Is that kind of along the lines that you're yeah. what you're saying? I just I, I don't want to have to start from zero every time it's this in the cloud and 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 here's a brand new Amazon instance. I, I'm not quite sure what 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 form it should take but but it feels important to me because the cloud is not going anywhere and it's going to change everything bill i i want to support what jason was saying right then because we talked about that in our meeting the other day and it was a long and and uh, useful discussion because everybody can see that the traditional production skills and things like that are migrating into this global thing called the cloud um all sorts of production processes are becoming internationalized and distributed. And I agree that when you've got a fundamental deep technology like cloud access, cloud manipulation, uh, just plumbing yourself into the cloud and how do you do that through what services and what do you, how do you pay for it? If we, if we ignore that stuff, I think we're doing a disservice in all the other areas. I'm not saying you have to focus on it entirely for over and over again and, and constantly relate things back to the cloud. But Jason's point about if you don't understand the very basics of that, are you going to have trouble finding your footage footing as all these jobs migrate more toward that? It's, it seems pretty important to me. And I just want to go back to um, John or some of the elements that John picked in his question here of like the marketing aspects, the HR and staffing, and again, putting this out to the producers and those watching um, the future of the industry, but also what other verticals should we be looking at or could we be looking at, which may come out when we um, push out the survey to the community to, because um, from a marketing Whenever we go into a project, we're always looking at who the audience is and what, um, like the makeup, the demographics of the audience to understand what kind of content needs to be put out or however this event is. And I think that's something that is is helpful as well to, okay, so those that tune in on Mondays and yes, watch the replay, but um, what other verticals do we need to touch on? We might not be touching on all of them yet. And that's why we're having this conversation. Bill? 
I just wanted to expand on what I'm saying. I'm not saying specifically that every we have to keep studying AWS or how to put video in the cloud, but think about all the things that Office Hours does now that have a cloud component of it, whether it's Discord or whether it's the other tools we use, scheduling and things like that. In all of those cases, those of us who want to be involved in the production of this need to expand out and maybe plumb in some things they weren't thinking of. I didn't use Gmail very much, but now I'm using it more and more because some part of uh, coordinating the work in the group that I'm a part of requires me to understand that. And I think there's bunches of stuff like that that are going to be fundamentally changing and that we need to keep aware of all of them if we're going to serve our audience well. Jason? Well, and getting, getting back to kind of the essence of the question, I love the idea of taking a specific vertical and explaining it all the way uh, to the top. But thematically, I can understand how that can be problematic. Um, getting back to just kind of the rote fundamentals, uh, for what it's worth, I, I'm, I'm probably not the only one with a business degree. And, you know, being able to explain the benefits of a single subscriber LLC, um, you know, and generally in most states, how easy it is to incorporate... I don't know if we really want to get into that, but it is a pretty important aspect, um, you know, of, of covering your liability, getting insurance, getting a corporate bank account, um, you know, that kind of thing. It could be covered pretty quickly and, and pretty generically, I guess, maybe. What does the lawyer's son think about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> That is that that is even if it's under an umbrella to your point of even just like getting started with business and just some of the fundamental things that could probably work across like globally, that could be very valuable. Um, and usually those are topics at the top of the year anyhow. So that that helps with programming. Alex? Yeah, and I think a lot of times it, it comes down to I think we can find ways to talk about those discussions of basic ball handling skills like just how do you keep yourself out of trouble how do you get things basically set up not how not how do you find tricky ways to do it but how do you just find really basic running plays that just just has your business not become complicated um and i think that you know discussions around that are good and they work everywhere you know um to, to make that work next question Douglas Carmichael's up next. And Douglas this time says, uh, our own Victor Cahio uh, did a second hour on composing a song with GarageBand, and he's got a link to it there. Should we do another second hour on music composition, which, explore, which explores not only software, but compus compositional techniques? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think it's time for our office hours band to get back together again. And this time, rather than doing a, a you know, a remake of our, or a, you know, their own uh, take on an existing song to compose something from scratch. And I think we have enough talented people here who have some composition skills uh, to document their composition of the song before it's handed over to the rest of the band to, to generate their parts and chime in on it. I think that would be great. And to answer your question, Douglas, yes, we, it looks like we'll probably have to reach out to Victor or even if there's someone else in the community that we can have that conversation. And Bill, didn't you do, you did a breakdown of editing the video? Was that an after yeah. hours or was that a, okay. Yeah, we did that. So we, we have old pieces on the, the archives about how the band kind of formed and put together. And uh, it's a fascinating process. There are people like Brian who were compositionally really strong, who were able to adapt songs. Going through the process of the Office Hours Band was one of the most educational and enjoyable things I think I've done in the last five years. And it was just a delight. Um, 
you know, I hope we can get more of the people back in here to do that, but I would be all for it. And um, I think it'd be a fascinating ex- exploration. Next question. Uh, let's see. John Snyder is up next from Reno, Nevada. Second hour topic idea, understanding metrics, particularly YouTube, web stats, and so forth. Go ahead, Jason. I love this um, because it's constantly evolving. And to me, it has two parts. It's um, understanding what the numbers are. And then the fact that statistical inference is really more like jazz than anything else that anyone who's ever ever seen Google Analytics should have a pretty good sense of, of just how complex it can get. But, but like, you know, again, I come back to a shared vocabulary of like, you know, here's what these numbers are actually what they, you know, what they are. Here's, you know, this meter in your car does this. And then what you can infer from that is an entirely separate subject. Agreed. Yeah, just the overall analytics conversation, because that's usually the the hardest part. Like you've done all this work, whether it be with your content or the project, but then that um, that recap and the impact and the ROI, like we throw those words out. But to really understand how you get to a certain state and how to make those adjustments uh, could be extremely valuable. Next question. Josh Kaufman, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Given the office hours focus on media and virtual events and Monday's business focus, where might we look to find entrepreneurial stories and second hour guests where somebody successfully created a live stream or media outlet from a skill or hobby that they love? We've we've had Greg Gibson, you know, share his story. But then to your point, Josh, of, you know, finding others, I've seen just even being connected to various office hour members on LinkedIn, that the people that they're connected to in this space, being able to, um, there's a, a woman out in California who has a big virtual events production company. I was like, oh, we need to tap her. Um, so I think it, it comes from us, one, having this conversation today day and that letting the community know we're definitely welcome your thoughts and any suggestions and putting that in the second hour for discord so i think that's a great place to start next question chris widener lafayette indiana up next what about a second hour on successful streamers and their business models on their specific platform twitch youtube patreon all be obvious three although maybe other float plane or maybe float plane would be good too the business and sponsorships can vary greatly yes they can and i think even to bringing on because i don't recall i've been here for like two plus years uh anyone from twitch coming on but even looking into some of the successful folks uh using that that platform and they've made a a bunch of changes in the past month or so so that would be a good idea a great second hour and i know that josh you're (laughs) you're taking notes in the background alex yeah i think that understanding their business model will be really interesting to the level that they're willing to talk about it. Um, Where do they actually make money? Is it in advertising? Is it in product sales? Is it in, you know, because they all have different ones. One of the things when you start working with YouTubers, for instance, some of them are mostly just selling products. It's their own products that they make that go along with their videos. Some are making money on advertising. Some are, you know, making money by getting sponsorships from, you know, large corporations. And so, you know, understanding what those all are and what works in different areas is, it would be really interesting. Bill? 
Yeah, the, the topic of the business of streaming, I'm still confused as to why I keep hearing all these stories. You know, uh, Bob put up a video and got three million views and didn't make a penny off of it. Or the other side of that, this person just diligently worked and built that upward revenue stream over the course of five years by doing these things. I think a lot of people would be interested in those things. Go ahead, Jason. Well, and there are as many ways to monetize this as there there are ideas to monetize. I mean, really, it it, it truly is sticking things to the wall. Um, Adam Savage is a, a wonderful human and, and and a great speaker and an incredibly talented model maker. And you know, instead of um, instead of trying to succeed um, purely on Patreon. He sells merit badges for ways you can be injured in your shop. Like, you know, this is the, I just hit my thumb with a hammer merit badge. Like, I thought, like, what a great idea. You know, so it truly, the, the you know, the sky's the limit. And I think Alex said it really well as like also how much they would be willing to share. And most of these creators, too, are also probably creating or working and navigating those schedules. So that's why we're having this conversation so that we can try to invite them on sooner than later as they plan out their 2023 as well. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. We talked about the business of esports, but what about the production techniques behind esports? Courtney? Well, the production techniques are moving into mainstream, you know, as you find ESPN starting to cover esports and some of the other sports channels covering it. The production techniques are just along the line of any arena sports uh, venue as we've come out of COVID and gone back to uh, real live uh, sports events. They're putting on these uh, esports competitions like a football game or a basketball game. And so the same techniques used to cover that, it's a little more static because all the players are sitting at, at computer consoles and they tend not to be too too many dynamic personalities involved. They have to add a lot of flash and glitz and uh, production value to them uh, to make it seem a little more exciting than the in-person venue actually uh, pretends. Uh, but uh, you know they're using the you know, all the big boy toys to produce these things these days. And that's a great comment, uh, Douglas, because I think even getting to to do the work to get Todd on the show, it actually came out of it was sometime in the summer in Discord. There was some going back and forth of just even the production side of esports. I think Jonas has done a couple of productions. Jeff Keatley has done some. So also making sure that I could get like scheduling time with those folks to come on because they can definitely share a lot on that side of things of like the actual production and some of the things that. That you think through because not all esports um, productions are created equally. There's some on the smaller scale, some on the larger scale. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, Douglas. Next question. Next one comes from John Wallace in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, second hour topic: managing technical people. Ooh, Bill. I would absolutely vote up managing technical people. I would also add in managing creative people. I, I you know, I, maybe it's my years in radio when there was this gulf between the sales team and the on-air team. And I remember, you know, when I made kind of a little bit of the switch, became the production director at a radio station rather than just being an on-air talent, uh, I got a new appreciation for how hard it is to sell an intangible like radio time. And some of the things that they had asked me to, you know, I'm, I'm coming in late Friday and here's 10 more uh, spots that have to be done. And I got a little huffy about, hey, come on, you, you know, you're messing up my weekend to do your job. But as I understood what their job was, 
I backed off being a little so hostile about it. So I think all the different areas of um, managing human beings, how do, how do you get to a creative person who might be more sensitive to some topics than the business person? And how do you also make the creative people understand that without the business people, you're not going to make a buck off of all this creative work you're doing. You know, they all have their place. And I think that's a huge, important topic to speak on. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think it would be a good topic because a lot of times people don't take into account the fact that they hire a lot of technical people that are experts in each of their individual fields, but they may not have overlapping expertise. So if if one person who's a key person on the crew gets sick or has a personality conflict with the producer or something and storms off the set, what are you going to do? You know, handling uh, a topic of handling situations like that where you have... Make sure you're hiring uh, technical people that have overlapping fields of interest that could jump in and take over that particular uh, crew position if needed in an emergency. That would be, uh, you know, a great topic for second. Next question. Next question from uh, Paul Wallace, Cedar Creek, Texas. What are the guidelines for using a clip from YouTube of the office hours panel answer to some of my questions? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think that... um, uh, you can use anything you want from here. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Like, just cut it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, do you, if you need to cut something out and put it somewhere. I mean, we prefer you not to take the whole thing and publish it, you know, into another YouTube channel or something like that. But if you have like a clip that you're trying to use somewhere, especially in a presentation or something, you should feel free to use it. Next question. That's better than Creative Commons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like <laughs> I used to do Creative Commons. Now I'm just like, oh, just, just, yeah, oh, come on. I'm like, whatever. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So. All right. Chad LaFarge from Columbia, Missouri is up next. Controller options. I'd love to hear what other people are using, how they optimize their workflows for them, and what makes specific tools special. Are you talking about like gaming controllers or things like that? Or or what kind of controllers? Jason? I think he's talking about, you know, the various um, MIDI interfaces of the world that, you know, use USB and can make things easier. You know, starting at Stream Deck, um, there was... There was one, um, what are the name of the modular ones that you could snap together? They were supremely cool and very expensive. I, I bought them. I, I know Alex bought them. Um, they were a couple years ago. They were very cool. Um, do you remember the name, Alex? I don't. Yeah, they were neat, but gone. <laughs> so there are a lot of ways to do this. Chad, Chad says that, yeah, that's exactly what he um, what he was referring to. I just, even just jumping onto Chad's question, just like workflows, I always find workflows fascinating. So maybe even um, there could be something around that. I don't know if it's, if it's per industry, like how to move information and information through people, or if there's like a more overarching, uh, of overarching topic, but that's always like, so how do, how do we get from A to Z? Jason? Yeah, another thought would be just, you know, take a single um, easy to acquire component, like a, a Korg Nano, right? How far can we go with a Korg Nano? How far can we push it? Um, and um, I think there are three, but there's one major one used in production. You know, the ones, the ones with the, the faders. Um, no, they're not motorized, but you know, they're cheap and they are infinitely graphable. You can plug one directly into an ATEM, for example, um, and it, it will it'll do MIDI connections. But again, not for high end productions because it gets a little wonky. It, it you know, lots of things to explore here. 
And then pulling in a comment from um, Dr. Chris Clark says, cultivating teamwork, planned redundancy of skills, and a feeling of community as possible um, topics for second hours. Next question. Nice. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Up next, uh, Courtney had an interesting suggestion of second hours based on interviews or uh, an interview or interviews. What homework pre-watch content would the community be interested in to underpin a second hour discussion? Interviews, YouTube videos, media events to emulate or avoid, perhaps? Alex? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I'd love to do for second hours is when we post second hours is to have a, a whole, here's your reading materials if you want to do that. Like if you want to get the most out of second hours, here are a couple of YouTube videos to look. We're going to talk about this subject. This would go for any day of the week. We're going to talk about this subject. We're going to have, um, uh, you know, here are a couple of YouTube videos and, and maybe even the in and out points or the end point for those so you don't have to watch the whole thing. Uh, here are some other maybe web pages that you might want to look at or PDFs. And I think having that that kind of material for everybody. What's interesting about sending materials out to folks for a Q&A is that if only a small percentage of the people actually read it, it informs the questions and the entire conversation goes up. So when everybody's flat, you know, it, it, there's one conversation when you send out pre, it doesn't mean that everybody has to read it. Everybody has to do the homework, but if 10 or 15 or 20% of our viewers do the homework, um, the questions become uh, at a different level, especially on something that's more new to us. Jason. And before anyone gets worried by reading material, we don't actually mean you're going to have to read a web page. Um, this it it, yes. it will be completely and you know it'll it'll be completely it'll be accessible. Yeah, it'll be it'll be it'll be audio. Courtney. Yeah, and I know it's more work for Alex, but uh, if he could put links, you know, if you're going to if we're going to talk about a certain topic on a certain day, if there's any anything that would uh, increase your knowledge on that topic or yeah, exactly expose exactly. you to something, put those links in the emails they go out so that we can yep. know coming up ahead of time. That's exactly what stuff. I think we, we would, would be great to do is to have a bunch of stuff that's all connected to it. I mean, in a perfect world, you'd have a team that built like little videos and things and pages and this is what's coming up and someday so when we're bigger. But but and it won't be more work for me because I can't do it right now. <laughs> it'll be more work for Josh and, and the councils that are working on the different verticals. But but as we brainstorm, as we think about this is a subject we want to talk about, it, it really doesn't take that much time per unit to go out and spend 10 minutes on each subject and just go, I'm going to look for a bunch of links that that I think will make sense, especially if a couple people do it and come together and just say, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. And how would we measure like the effectiveness of it in doing that? Is just, is there something more tangible than just the, the quality of the questions or the conversation? I don't think that, I mean, if, if we had all the videos in our own space, then we would know how many people watch them. But I, I think that it would, I think we would probably see um, uh, just a higher quality conversation, higher quality questions we already get great questions i mean every person that comes here that that sits down is like wow i can't believe there were so many good questions and so we're already doing really well but i think this would take it to another level if we if we had a little bit of and we should think about it like this shouldn't take someone more than x amount of time to look at so you know this isn't hours of you know it could be like here's the sh here's the here's a hit list of a couple of things if you really want to dig into this here's another one so there's like 10 minutes of stuff that you might do and then here's the two hour version so and there's some people that are really interested in this, and if we give them, these are things that we that are that we can talk about. They'll dig into it, and they'll get a lot more out of it. A lot of times, we only have these experts once. You know, um, we don't bring them back over and over again. So we want to make sure that everybody has the 
the uh, as as you know the best foot forward to to ask and get the most out of every hour. Sounds good. And Bill, as someone who does the reading a lot, I try to do the best job I can of promoting what's coming later. And I know there's uh, other sources for doing that. Does it make any sense to have when we talk at the end of the show in the wrap up some graphic that can come up with QR codes or something like that for the other days following and say? here's something for Thursday or here's something for Friday to look at before the show. Does that make sense? In general, uh, our experience is if we put it out in the email and people, that'll be what I mean, we can definitely build QR codes for that. But the email is going to have links to, you know, as it goes out every day, um, you know, and, and Josh has made a huge push and, and, a, and a huge improvement of the email in general. I think a lot of us know, noticed that it's yes. nice, nicely laid out. First, we had to get it out of the Zoom auto auto email, and then and then Josh went to work on it. And I think that even my even my my older daughter was like, "Whoa, I got the I got the new email. It looks way better." <laughs> so so I got a lot of up, up, updates there. So um, and it's going to keep on getting better. One of the things we want to do eventually is customize it when we have a bigger team. And if you're interested in that, let Josh know. But lay it out so that you have, you know, today is this, and this is what we're we're doing. Tomorrow is this, and and you know, and it's a little bit more uh, graphical of this is what's there, and kind of the day is is a big thing, and then the the, the next days are maybe a little bit less, but they all give you that information every day, so that you you can you have somewhere to ref. You know, some people complain about. There's always a certain number of people that complain about getting something every day. I have to admit that my thing is I just want to make sure it comes out at the same time because it means that any given day I can just go down to a specific time and find what what are we talking about today. So um, I, I and I I get a lot of email and so I, I I never quite understand the I don't want to get an email every day because you know I I sift through hundreds and hundreds of emails very fast. So I don't I don't. Um, don't quite get that, but but I you know we don't want to do more than that. But I think that having something every day that tells you where it is makes makes a difference. And Courtney, yeah, one uh, if we're gonna come up with the idea of actually pre-interviewing people uh, who who schedule does not accommodate them being on the show live, what would be great is is to promo that you know schedule that interview assign a person to interview that person at whatever time that who can do it at whatever time that person is available and promo it ahead of time so that we can uh, access you know to post on discord go into discord and post your questions there for the interviewer so that he can ask questions related to many of our producers here that they want to ask that certain person so that even though we're going to be playing that canned interview as part of a second hour and then carrying on with additional questions, that the questions that the interviewer is asking are those posed by the uh, panelists and, and producers of Office Hours. So prom promote it maybe a week in advance saying, you know, next week we're going to have so-and-so. We're going to be interviewing so-and-so on this such-and-such -such a date. Get your questions in now and put a link to Discord where you can enter questions for that specific interview. Next question. Next one comes to us from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. When you think of the office hours community, how would you break down the present the percent by industry or profession? Alex. It is all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there is a I, I I have you know, we we have put out some um polls and we don't get enough people to be statistically accurate. So uh that have filled out those polls. We might do it again in somewhere in the future. Um did it we did it early on uh, we could probably do it again and just just to get a sense of it um but yeah it is i mean the 
variety of people in the in the viewership i'm always amazed by i don't know if there's a specific industry that that is heavier than others there there is a specific uh a lot of people who watch mac break <laughs> are here um and their friends uh so that that definitely was a was a common thing that's probably i think it's dropped a little bit but for a while it was like 80 percent. now it's probably in the high 50s um of, of some crossover there um but uh but but i think that it's it's been kind of amazing to see you know what um how and i think that's really important i think the heterogeneous mix of the audience is is part of what makes it so interesting yeah and that that's why i was like maybe somebody else because it is we have a lot of you know a lot of technical technical folks i, I do find there are some faces or some names that i regularly see on mondays and you know the john snyders the morgans who are in organizations which is why i tend sometimes that those conversations like okay we got to make sure apart from the entrepreneurial part of things making sure that we're speaking to people who are in an organization who are not necessarily um, a part of a production crew so I was just curious as to anyone else's thoughts of we've got programmers we've got software you know software folks um, there are event planners uh, as well so I was just curious if, it, if anyone else had some some snapshots so yes we'll look forward to getting another another survey out just to to see how helpful that could be next question Douglas Carmichael up next what do you what do you, uh, training and or onboarding pipelines and how to build them? And he notes CILM's Jedi Academy. Hmm. So Douglas, I'm interested in, this is a great question or, or suggestion. So are you saying like just the best ways to train people? Or are you saying actually using tools for, um, for training them? Alex, you might have some more insights there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's different ways to do it once you're in a company as well. I mean, I and I was actually part of ILM training, <laughs> so or not not I didn't do it. I was in it. I was being taught how to build creatures in Softimage, um, which which was what I what I did in my training there. Um, but the uh, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how companies approach this uh, you know training as we move forward because it's really really important to start even before people are working for you. Um, it, it is one of the things that, you know, Google grow with Google. I think it would be really interesting to bring some of the managers on that are talking about that. Swift Playgrounds, um, you know, some of the Cisco and AWS training, you know, what they're looking at is how do they seed the entire industry? And also they know that it takes years to figure this out and they don't want to spend, they don't want to pay you for those years. <laughs> so, they, so they'd rather, they'd rather give you training so that you can, you can figure it all out. And then you prove that you learned the stuff that they wanted you to learn and then they can hire you, you know? And so I think that that's going to be, I think you're, I think that um, a discussion about training the industry for, you know, for future acquisition is something that a lot of companies don't do very well. Um, you know, I know that, you know, when I invested so heavily in Pixel Core, you know, we, we definitely had a lot of people that we had trained and I still hire them. <laughs> I hired one of them last week from, a, uh, I actually worked, one was training me, one, someone from Pixel Core was training me in something and, and another one was doing work for me. And these are people that I've known that I've gone to, um, you know, 15 years, you know, so it was a really interesting um, puzzle, but that investment has paid off over and over and over again. And in the comments, John Snyder says, Disney U is a great example of corporate training program as well. And Douglas did say, yes, both the tools to use for training, but then also the actual workflow of how to best train people. So thank you for that, Douglas. Next question. 
Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. What do you think of a second hour on the human relations issues related to our industry? Uh, particularly, you know, it's resolving conflicts within teams, choosing people for effective teams, and how to de-escalate situations, that sort of thing. Jason? So I've done production for the state of New Mexico, um, continuing education on mediators. And any mediation class is is just, it's a fascinating deep dive into um, the role of a mediator, which isn't actually to solve the problem. It's, it's kind of to continue to put the problem in front of the people who are having it and, and like, you know, just kind of continue to churn it until, um, until it gets resolved. Something along those lines might be interesting. It may also lose our audience. I don't know. Bill? Well, there's such a ton of money around the world being spent on generating um, conflicts and tribalism that I think anything that can talk to people about combating those forces uh, from all sides and all directions, I mean, it's one of the things that drives people to get upset enough to open their wallet and people have figured that out. So anything that can de-conflict those forces, I think, are is is useful to look at for all sides, for all circumstances. There's just a lot of stress out there in the world right now. And so having skills that can help an individual or a group uh, handle those, good thing. This almost feels like it falls into, we had someone on talking about mental health. So it could be one of Absolutely. those more like, okay, so the relational part or the personal part of, of the work that we do. So conflict resolution and relationship building and okay, see where that's going. Courtney. I think we already may have already done this in the second hour, but uh, uh, working a good second hour is working with celebrities um in the entertainment industry you know it's rife with minefields and it's a whole different topic than working with just individuals a celebrity a lot of times will have handlers that you have to go through uh, publicists or uh, managers etc and you have to be careful not to offend anyone uh, especially if they're they have large egos uh as a, as a result of their celebrity. So you have to be fairly careful about that. That might be a good second hour, uh, how to make sure your crew doesn't step into a minefield of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> celebrity eggshells that you, you want to tiptoe over. And that really goes well, too, with the... Um that was just a great show with all, all the feedback on jobs of the future and just the celebrity aspect of, okay, how... Bringing, bringing PAs or bringing people on site, and especially if they're coming out of school, how that how they need to conduct themselves, and maybe there's something even some kind of etiquette going along that that sh that stream of thought there, um, Courtney. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Business is starting a business is like staring into the abyss and eating glass. Unpleasant but necessary duties and ever-present jeopardy awareness. What less glamorous topics on needs versus wants and how much weight to give these topics? Jason? So here's an easy one. Um, one spreadsheet comparing a rental of an equipment over the course of five jobs, you know, with with annual depreciation on on you know its standard single member LLCs taxes um, versus calling it an equipment charge and financing it yourself, um, you know, versus renting it. I don't know something like that. Less glamorous, but it can make all the difference. 
Very true. And I keep coming back to just even the financial, whether it be bookkeeping 101 or some of those fundamental, because if your cash flow isn't in order, that will impact. We all want to get to the fun, creative stuff, but without the without generating revenue, then you won't be doing the fun stuff for very long. So that being the unpopular but necessary part of the business. Alex? Yeah, I mean... There's, the, there's so many places here and there's so many intricacies of how you manage your finances in business that I think are really, um, you know, we had to do what's called factoring your invoices because at one point with PixelCore, because we were growing so fast, we were ahead, you know, we were doubling every month for a little while. And, um, and uh, you know, and so you couldn't, you know, your A, AR and AP didn't didn't add up, didn't, didn't line up. And so understanding what that meant and, and, and how to do and how to deal with it and how to, and, and what, and how to not get into that situation. We only had to do it. Most people, when they factor stuff, only have to do it for a couple months. It's on a pinch, but, um, but it was, but what does that mean? And, and how does that look to the vendor that you're working or the client? And, you know, all those things, I think it'd be really interesting. Next question. Douglas Carmichael back again with second hour topic, managing professionals on the autism spectrum and bringing more of them into our industry. I think that is definitely a, a great topic and uh, definitely a need that we can, um, just even with Harshid sharing that, I'm like, okay, so we can add some more accessibility even to the Monday conversation. Um, Tony? Yeah, uh, this is something that if you're interested in doing it, you have to be intentional about it. And by that, I mean, that is you really want to do it and there are there are a lot of different ways that you can do it and that the, the thing about um dealing with people on the spectrum is that there is no one mold that you can fit people in because they everyone that's on the spectrum is unique their needs their abilities is extremely varied um, but there are opportunities, there are some people who will, the, the main issue that you have to deal with when you're talking about a professional that is on the spectrum is that typically the issue is not their abilities to do work. It is their ability to be able to be social and interact with team members. That is the barrier that is most often the problem. And so that's the, that's the area that you have to focus on It's not the not the actual work that that can be done because there are so many brilliant people that are on the spectrum. The issue, the deficit, you know, is social. It's the interaction with others and team members. Thank you for that, Tony. And thank you to all of our producers. We've, we've wrapped another second hour on the topic of second hour. So thank you for your feedback. And if you are watching the replay, feel free. And if you're part of the community to go into Discord and add your ideas about what we should discuss for the second hours on Mondays. And to our panelists, thank you so much for your insights, your feedback, your suggestions. And of course, the back end crew for which we would not be able to, our global back end crew 
crew. We would not be able to come to you the way that we do across Zoom and YouTube. And I do want to share, we've got an exciting week. We have a Zoomtopia coverage is taking place um, tomorrow so that we'll have a keynote watch party taking place in after hours. And tomorrow's show is inside the show with Felipe Nardi. And he'll be talking about creating outstanding Zoom virtual audience experiences without a team and without being tech savvy. So if you want to learn more about what we do here and the schedule for the rest of the week, head over to officehours.global and we will see you all next time. Bye. A second hour on second hours is so meta. It is, isn't it? Oh, wait until we start doing second hours on third hours and fourth hours. It's like first breakfast and second breakfast. I don't think they know about second breakfast. I don't think they do either. Speaking of meta, lots of layoffs today. Thank you, Dr. Clark, for your feedback. Always. See everyone in after hours. These people do a lot more than the people you see. Watch these names. Yes. <laughs>